All right, this is our third lesson on church governments. Uh, we're calling this lesson the four types of church governments. And that alone is based on uh, what, what is actually in existence in churches around the world. The four types is not a biblical thing. It's an answer to what is actually established. Uh, we're covering these lessons because we need to understand how churches are designed to run and operate. Um, we've, our first lesson that we talked about covered the nature of authority. Because when you deal with governments and administrations, what you're dealing with is uh, the authorization and empowering of authority and how you're going to organize to run something, and then administration is the actual running of it. So governments is kind of like the delegation and the organization of a building or facility or a, a group, and then administrations is actually the operation or the inaction of what you've planned. We had to look at the nature of authority so you understand uh, how come only the president gets to be the president? Well, it's because of the nature of authority. How come only the police get to shoot folks lawfully? Because of the nature of authority. How come I can't just jump up and interrupt a church service? Because of the nature of authority. And a lot of this stuff we understand just naturally, though we've never been given words to it. You know that in a classroom, you don't just speak out of turn, you raise your hand. You, you know because of how the professor or the teacher has authorized this classroom to operate what you can and can't do. And even on the collegiate level, different professors run their classrooms differently. And how you behave in one classroom, you can't behave in the other. And how you behave in that one, the previous professor would expect you to do more or less. So we understand this. The second lesson we looked at were the offices or officers ordained in the New Testament that included fivefold ministry gifts, that included bishops, elders, deacons, and then helps ministers. In the New Testament, there are only five officers established in the church. And we looked at in the previous lesson, who gives them authority and then who ordains them. And that's really what we have to ask ourselves as we look into this lesson, who gives a person their authority and who ordains them. With the fivefold ministers, according to Ephesians 4, 10, and 11, it is Jesus Christ that ordains them, and therefore their authority comes from Jesus Christ. The apostle is ordained by Jesus, and the apostle gets their authority from Jesus Christ. Same with the pastor. He gets his authority from Jesus Christ, and he's ordained of Jesus Christ. After those fivefold ministers, everybody underneath them get their authority from man. And that's what we talked about, that kind of that river of authority. That God the Father is the head. And Jesus Christ said, I hear and receive from the Father. So then he hands things to Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus said, all power and authority has been given unto me. And then Jesus Christ, he says, I give it to the Holy Ghost. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will receive of me and give it unto you. So then the river of authority flows to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us, authorizes us, and strengthens us. What Paul said in Romans 13 is that all authority is of God. He's the head of the river. And as you come down that river, it branches and is diversified. And so when we looked at the offices of the church, you have the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They're the full-time ministers, and then they delegate authority underneath them just in the church. Now you can go over here and see the Lord God ordains presidents. He ordains kings. He ordains prime ministers. Their authority comes from Him. Even Romans 13 says that technically, now this isn't King James lingo, but technically police officers, the Bible says, are ministers of the gospel. It says that those that bear the sword, that's a law enforcer, they do not bear it in vain, but they are God's ministers to execute judgment upon unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 13, about verse 4 or 5. So even a police officer has authority that comes from the head of the church, the Lord Jesus. And that's why we respect police officers, because according to the Bible, they're gospel ministers. Not like I am, 
but they're God's ministers to execute judgment on unrighteousness. Now, they don't carry a sword. Their sword's called Glock, 40 caliber, and they can swing it quicker than an old soldier could swing a sword in Paul's day. So when we start looking at church governments, we have to see who has power, who has authority, and who does not. So let's look at this. This is the four types of church governments. These lessons are critical to look at because they let us know how the church should and shouldn't run. Let's jump in here. Every local body of believers must be governed in some form or fashion, for our God is not the author of confusion. Today, there are four major types of church governments employed in the body of Christ for the governance of the local church. Let us analyze each of them and discuss their biblical merit. Now, I want you to know as we look at these, we're going to look at three types of governments and we're going to prove that three of the four are totally unbiblical. But they're probably the most widely used. And if we're going to be sticklers for the word, we have to understand why they're unbiblical. That's not to put down the denominations or the churches that use them. It's just to point out why their form of government is not biblical and where it's going to fail or where it does fail. The first type we want to look at is what is called the Episcopal government. Now, that doesn't mean because it's only the Episcopals, but it, the, the term refers to who's in charge. So with the Episcopal government, uh, this form of church government is used by the Roman Catholics, by Anglicans, by Episcopals, by Methodists, by Lutherans, and the churches of God. Okay? What this all refers to is this form of church government gets its name from the Greek word episkopos, meaning bishop or overseer. All right? By its namesake, this form of government distributes its power and decision-making authority to bishops or overseers. The word episkopos means bishop, it means overseer. So when a church is run with an episcopal form of government, what that means is the churches have the, the top of the church chain of command is an episcopal, episcopos, it's a bishop. Uh, we have some good friends that are in the churches of God, Church of God in Christ, and they're pastors, but they talk about, I, I've got a bishop that's over me. I submit to the bishop. Well, great. And there's bishops that are over districts. Great. Wonderful. The only problem with that is, and maybe it's just in their namesake or in their name recognition, the only problem with that is that according to uh, Titus 1, 5, and 7, and 1 Timothy 3, 1, that bishops are ordained by pastors. So you've got a real problem when bishops are telling pastors what to do, when the biblical role model is that pastors ordain bishops and therefore tell him what to do. Do you follow that? To quote you for Titus 1, 5 through 7, it says that, uh, that you are to ordain bishops and elders in every city. Paul told that to Timothy, excuse me, to Titus, a pastor. He said, Titus, for this reason I've left you in Crete, that you might ordain that which is lacking, and that you would ordain elders in every city, for a bishop must be the husband of one wife. So he goes on to talk about bishops. So the problem you have there is that uh, Titus was a pastor. He's ordaining bishops, but in the Episcopal form of government, bishops are over churches telling pastors what to do. As we looked at in the previous lesson, you have bishops are under pastors. Pastors and prophets, evangelists, and teachers and apostles, they're all directly underneath the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 4. And then as they establish churches, they ordain bishops and elders to help. So what we've got is a serious issue with the Episcopal form of government. The ones who run the show are not authorized of Jesus Christ. Technically, they're authorized by man. 
So how can a man, authorized by man, tell the man who's authorized by Jesus what to do? Do you follow that? It's like the skinnier. You've got your river that comes down from heaven as authority, and you've got, of course, the more it branches, the thinner it gets. So it's like you've got the skinniest part of the stream trying to tell the thick part of the stream what to do, not realizing that technically the skinny part only has any authority because the thick part flowed down to it. Now we might could say, and sometimes we give it the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's just semantics. Maybe what they call the bishop over their district, he's really an apostle, and he ordained this young pastor to be over this church, but because of their denominational protocol, he's still called a bishop. Maybe that happens sometimes, and that's all right. But we're looking at technically, because these lessons are very technical, the technical merits of different forms of church government. The only problem with this is that, according to the Bible, bishops are selected by the local pastor, and a bishop is a position that any man can desire and qualify to obtain. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. So the office of a bishop is one that anybody can aspire to. That automatically makes it lower than a pastor, than an apostle, than a prophet, than an evangelist, than a biblical teacher. Um, those you're either called or you're not. Paul said, I'm an apostle not by the will of man, but by God's will. Same thing with a pastor. Either you're called to be one or you're not, and you can't just make yourself one. But with a bishop, anybody could want to be a bishop. Anybody could aspire to it. And Dr. Barclay says, and when he teaches on this, he says, and shame on all of you if you're not trying to be one. Shame on all of you if you're not wanting a higher uh, level in the church. There's too many Christians just come to church and they just want to be a bump on a log. And Dr. Barclay says, shame on you if you're not wanting to be better than that. So that's an Episcopal form of government. Now to review, this is how the Roman Catholics do things. They have bishops and archbishops. This is how the Anglicans do that. The Anglicans are very similar to Roman Catholics. Episcopals, Methodists, Lutherans, and the Churches of God. There's both white Churches of God, and then you have Church of God in Christ, which is the black Church of God denomination. They're both run by bishops. That's, that's how their chain of command is. The second form, very common, is called the Presbyterian form of government. That's not just because only the Presbyterians use it. This form of church government is used by Presbyterians, Pentecostal holiness, and many non-denominational churches. That would include spirit-filled churches like ours. We're not Presbyterian church government, though. The Presbyterian form of church government gets its name from the Greek word presbyteros, meaning elders. By its namesake, this form of government distributes its power and decision-making authority to an elder board. All right, anybody see a problem with that? Elders are ordained by fivefold ministers. So when you have a church run by elders, what that basically says is the pastor is bossed around by a board of elders. That's not biblical. My, I used to be a part of a church here in town that was Presbyterian run. Not the denomination Presbyterian, but by elder boards. And what happens, they actually ran their pastor off because they didn't like doing what he told them. And so they ran him off and they had about five or six elders that kind of, it was like a conglomerate. And those guys would take turn preaching. Can you imagine having a different pastor talking to you every five services or every service and the rotations every five? How do you even get any sense of stability or continuity or vision? When we're talking about church governments, we've got to have a vision. But if you've got a board of ten elders or five elders, you're going to have five visions trying to run the church. And what you're going to have is these people over here like elder number one, these people over here like elder number two's vision, those folks over there like elder number three's vision, and you have just split your church five ways 
based on five different elders, and that's a small presbytery. But that's how these denominations use it. They distribute their power and decision-making authority to a board of elders. That means the board of elders will vote on it. The board of elders will say, I, th I motion this, and the other, then they've got to get a majority on their rule. And so you, you're back to voting, and we don't see a single opportunity to vote in the entire Bible. Voting is not a biblical action. It's a government action, it's an American action, but it's not a biblical one. You can't show me a single instance of voting anywhere in the Bible. You can show me casting lots, but we don't do that in the New Testament because we're led by the Holy Spirit. The last time lots were cast in the Bible was Acts chapter 1. And then in Acts chapter 2, everybody got the Holy Spirit and they didn't cast lots anymore. Plus, the other, there's only two real famous instances of lack, lot casting. One was to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. They cast lots to see who it should be, one of two, Matthias one. He became the twelfth apostle of the Lamb. The only other time they cast lots was when Jonah got thrown overboard and swallowed by a whale and went to hell for three days and three nights. So those are the only two instances I can remember of casting lots in the Bible. That's about as close as you get to voting. And even then, it's not biblical for the New Testament. So what you've got with the Presbyterian is you've got a board of elders. The problem with that, once again, is that according to the Bible, bishops are selected by the local pastor and the elders themselves don't have any ruling power. Titus 1, 5-6 lets us know elders and bishops are basically the same thing. So to ordain elders in every city for a bishop must be the husband of one wife. They're basically synonymous. The problem is they don't have any ruling power. Elders help the local leader. Elders are ordained in a local church. They get their power from the head of the church, either the pastor or the apostle, and they help him run and rule things. They help him kind of figure out what's going on and they delegate and distribute their power. Uh, elders were established under Moses' leadership to assist Moses and to help bear his burden. And right there you find out what an elder really is to do. He is to help the leader and to help bear his burden. You see that in Numbers 11, 16 and 17. All right, so once again, those that have Presbyterian form of government are the Presbyterians, of course, Pentecostal holiness, and many non-denominational churches. That's who has that form of government. Our third type, and this is probably the most widely used one in our country, is the congregational form of government. This form of church government is used by the Baptist, the Assemblies of God, the Churches of Christ, and the Congregationalists. The congregational form of church government allows the laity or the congregation to have a say in the direction and decision-making of the church. This form of government allows the church members to vote on the direction and the decisions of the church. Does anybody see a problem with that? Yeah, big problem with that one. The only problem with this form of church government is that, biblically speaking, the congregation has no ruling power. Now, how it works in many churches, I was raised Baptist, so I understand this form really well. Uh, and we might add as a side note here, this only came to power about the time, this only became a popular form of government about the time America was birthed as a nation. We birthed this form of church leadership because we were establishing a nation 240 years ago. And we thought, good enough for a nation, and nothing wrong with it for a nation, then it must be good enough for an autocracy where Christ is king. <laughs> wait, wait, if it's the kingdom and Christ is king, we should let him delegate what is done in this church. 
The problem with congregational style form of, vote, of, of government is that when a pastor wants to do something, he has to get the church to vote on it. I want to go to Nicaragua and win the lost. And in, a, in our type of church, we'd say, praise God, pastor, tell us what to do. We'll help you. In a congregational form of church, I want to go to Nicaragua and win the lost. Well, what happens if you have a bunch of Guatemalans over here that hate Nicaraguans? You're going to lose what God wants you to do because you have a contingency in your church that doesn't like Nicaraguans. I think we should go to the inner cities and reach the black folks. And you got a bunch of racist whites. You're going to get voted down. I think we should give our money to the inner city food bank. And you got a bunch of folks that don't want to do that, so they vote you down. Well, when you're the pastor, God's talking to you to lead the church. Your job as a pastor is to fix the sheep that this form of government gives the voting power to. So it doesn't make much sense. I know folks among these churches, they get very frustrated because the church will vote to put all their money in a certain country. And other folks will say, but there's other countries that need Jesus too. And you end up having this division and this schism in the church based on voting whims and voting rights. This is the most widely used form of government in our nation, church government, because it affects the biggest denominations in our, in our country. You, know, you no longer have the opportunity for the pastor or the, uh, the apostle to be the visionary. He now has to have the people's rights to vote. In fact, uh, one church just recently uh, in our town, the pastor stood up and he said this, and take it how you want it, he was trying to exercise his right as a pastor. He said, I want our church to withdraw from our denomination so we can be independent. Well, in order to do that, he had to have majority vote. So he's basically saying, I vote, we no longer vote. And if you're in for that, raise your hand and say aye. And he said this, and if you vote against it, I'll leave. And so he basically strong-armed his church. Now, take it here or there, however you want to judge that, but his church was a congregational style, so he had to have a bulk of the vote to be able to do what he felt God had called him to do. But he basically said, if you vote against it, I'll just leave. I'll quit you and I'll go start another church, and I'll run it the way I want it run. So the church unanimously voted, let's withdraw from our denomination. That way you can be an executive as you maybe should, or we want you, or what have you. There was another church that recently lost their pastor. They were a congregational stop, and he left to go start a work that wasn't constrained by his denomination. Now, it is often argued that if you give one person all the power, then you're in trouble, and there, there are checks and balances to be had. But one of the things we have to keep in mind with the congregation, Pastor Vaughn told the story among the Baptists. They were wanting him to be pastor. The only problem was he knew the Bible better and he was spirit-filled. And so when the church, when it came time to vote whether he could be a pastor or not, if the church was only running 100 people every Sunday, that Sunday morning they had 300 because everybody who never came to church showed up to exercise their right to vote. So what business do 200 backslidden buzzards have in selecting their pastor? They don't bother to show up to other services anyway. Why do they care? Except you just got politics involved in your local church. And the church is not a political entity. It is the kingdom of Christ. So what happened is a handful of folks that didn't want Pastor Vaughn to be the pastor of that Baptist church called all the members that hadn't been to church in two or three years and say, you need to be there this Sunday. We're voting. And so you just entrusted the will of God to a majority of backslidden Christian voters. That makes no sense to me. 
Plus, okay, so the job of the local pastor is to perfect the saints. So you got a fornicator here, a couple tithe thieves over there, someone who hates blacks here, someone that hates Mexicans over there. And I stand up and I say, we're going to take the tithe and we're going to reach the minorities of this town. I'll have all their votes against me. But I'm the one that's supposed to be fixing them, but they're going to tell me what I can't do. So it doesn't make any sense. It may be the most flawed of all the forms of church government because at least with the Episcopals you actually have a biblical office with some authority and at least with the Presbyterians you actually have a biblical office with some authority but you get to the congregation and no offense against the laity of the congregation they come to church to be fixed by the preacher why or how do they possibly know what God wants to do there will always be those that are spiritual enough but you'll always have a bulk of those that are not According to Ephesians 4, the congregation needs a leader to perfect them so that they, the congregation, can then do the work. Ephesians 4 says that the fivefold ministers are given to perfect the saints. So if, if for me in this church, if I'm the pastor and I'm given to perfect you, why would you think you have the right to vote me in a certain direction? It doesn't make any sense. You need me to perfect you, but then again you have the authority to vote me out. That doesn't make any kind of sense to me, none whatsoever. And it doesn't make any biblical sense either. My job is to perfect you so you do the work, but you have the vote to vote me out. The problem is I end up being controlled by your vote. Let's say I teach on tithing, you don't like it, you can vote me out. I teach on don't fornicate, you don't like it, you vote me out. I teach on love one another, you don't like it, you vote me out. A good friend of mine, Valentin Dimitria, he's a Russian immigrant. He's a Baptist pastor over in East Tennessee in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. He's been run out of several churches because he preached the word and the deacons didn't like it. Among his sect of Baptists, the deacons have all the power. He's had a shotgun put in his face in the 80s and 90s, not talking like in the 1780s. He was preaching against Freemasonry and some of his deacons were Masons. They ran him off. He was preaching against not tithing, and one day he said he walked into the church, and that, uh, he was walking out, one of his deacons pulled a shotgun and stuck it in his face loaded, and said, you're not going to preach that anymore. And Pastor Valentin said, pull the trigger, I dare you, because the instant you do, I know where I'll be, and I'll know where you're headed. That's what happens when you let laity run the show. The man who's ordained of God doesn't get to do what he's ordained to do. You have a bunch of dirty masons controlling the church. The last church he was run off from, one of the boys, one of the young men, the 20-something-year-old, got born again, and uh, he was driving a beer truck. That was his job. Well, no big deal there. But after he got born again, Pastor Valentine began to deal with him. Son, we, better get you, we need to get you a better job. We need to get you a job that glorifies Jesus Christ. And you driving a beer truck, just stocking the shelves at gas stations and whatnot, that doesn't glorify Jesus. So let's begin to work towards getting you a better job. Well, the family got upset with that because this, this kid was making a lot of money and they wanted the kid to make a lot of money. Well, he, he told me, he said, Chris, this is one of those families where everybody in the family is related to the family. And now I'm dealing with the boy that just got saved to be a better Christian. And the whole family gets mad, stirs up the whole church, and they vote me out. And I said, I went to the Lord and said, Lord, what am I to do? And the Lord said, nothing. This was the church's last chance. I am done with them. That's what the Lord told a Baptist minister about a country church. He said, this is, you were the last chance I gave this church to get right with me. And they have run you off, and now I'm done with them. That's, a, that's Revelation chapter 2. The Lord will take candlesticks away from churches when they don't get with the program. All over a beer truck. <laughs> Here the man ordained of God that got the kid born again was trying to help the kid clean up his life and the church didn't want it. So they, 
They usurp biblical authority. And Jesus Christ said, fine, I'm done with you. That's what happens when congregations run the show. Congregations don't know what they need. That's why they have a pastor. They can't even figure out how to come to church three services a week. And they're going to tell the pastor what he can and can't do. It doesn't make any sense. Throughout the Bible, when the congregation was given a vote, they always voted against the will and plans of God. In fact, all your major rebellions under the Moses' leadership was the congregation rising up saying, we don't like what the leader says. Let's get a rebellion. Let's overthrow him and go back to slavery. When you give a congregation a vote, they're always going to vote slavery because it's easier on the flesh. Honestly, if we gave you guys a vote, you probably wouldn't show up for evangelism because it's hard on the flesh. But if we say we're going to evangelize and show up, yes, sir, and you don't like it, and until the first house, you don't like it, and then after the first doorbell, you feel much better about it, and you're glad you showed up. And then you're nervous for another month till it comes around, and then you hit the first doorbell, and whew, I'm glad we got that first one out of the way. I hate it all the way up until the first doorbell, and then you get that anointing on you, and you start really going with it. Let's look at the fourth form of, of government, and that is executive government. This is the only one that is biblical. This is the only one you can prove from Genesis to Revelation. The executive form of church government places all of the power and decision-making authority in the hands of one man, the executive. This is typically the local pastor or another five-fold ministry gift running the ministry given them by the Lord Jesus. The executive form of government is the biblical choice from Genesis to Revelation. From Joseph, Joseph and Moses to the judges and the kings to the apostles and New Testament pastors, God has always, 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 always led His people through executive offices. You might want to underline always. You can't find another instance where God, or a single instance where God used a conglomerate or a board or a committee. Even the judges, even though it's plural, judges, that was one leader, typically with the exception of Samson, for 40 years at a shot. Samson was 25 years. Everybody else was 40 years. It says, And they judged Israel 40 years. The word judge means governor. But we know from the judges and from Samuel and Chronicles that the judges, they were, they were pastors, they were feeders, they were warlords, they, they, were, they were like military commanders. And that's how God ruled Israel for the 400-something years of the judges, with one executive for 40 years at a time. That's how He did it. Moses was an executive. Joseph became Pharaoh. He was an executive. Joshua, he was an executive. You only had one leader. David, Saul, the kings, Josiah, they were all executives. Singular. Even when the kingdom was split, you only had two kings. That's God's choice. Then you get into the New Testament, and the apostles are trying to figure out, what do we do? Jesus just left, and they had, they had one or two apostles, and then they began to separate. Then, after just a few years of figuring out this New Testament church thing, you come back, James is in charge of the church at Jerusalem. All the others have gone to start other churches. And when they would leave, they would leave an executive or a pastor in charge of those local churches. And Paul or Peter or Bartholomew or the other apostles would move on to other areas and establish new churches, then raise up another Titus or another Timothy or another Paphroditus. And you always saw this singular head in leadership. Many churches choose to establish a collective form of church government whereby multiple people have authorization to steer the local church. This is especially common in the United States of America, which is a democratic republic, where most successful organizations are secular businesses with a board of directors. 
Though this may work in the world, the church is not the world, it is the church. God's kingdom has always been established around executive authority. Those leaders that were wicked died. So what about checks and balances, Pastor? Really easy. You die. <laughs> That'll keep you clean. In our church, we are executive here. We do have checks and balances. We have a set of bylaws. And in those bylaws, it basically says, if I get out there teaching weird stuff and I don't submit even to our, the board of directors, because we do have a board of directors and we have an advisory board as well, if I don't submit, I can be removed. But more often than not, what I find and what I have observed just in my 16, 17, 18 years of serving Jesus Christ in the full gospel is that more often than not when a church gets weird or the pastor, the executive gets goofy, people start leaving. Not just the occasional, because every church has movement, you know. Folks will feel called over there and folks will feel here until they get offended and then they'll go over there. But you'll start seeing mass exodus. You'll start seeing whole chunks of people peel off. And before long, the church is no longer 300 or 400 or 1,000. It's down to a fraction. That's what you begin to see. I know of one church right now, very personally, somewhat personally, that the pastor, his wife died of cancer, and he was set up as an executive form. And after his wife died, he married a woman who was young enough to be his daughter. And it was very shady and wouldn't happen to know it because something weird was going on. The church dropped from about 15 or 1,800 down to just a few hundred. That's kind of how God does things. When the, when the shepherd gets dirty, the Lord starts supernaturally transferring sheep. And those that stick around are either delusional or they're faithful to a fault or loyal to a fault. So lots of times folks ask and, and they even question, well, what about checks and balances? I, I prefer the supernatural kind. If I get dirty, folks will start leaving here. I know that. Not just one or two here, not just a family that's stubborn. I'm talking big chunks, and I'm very much aware of that. Well, what if you start teaching weird stuff? Well, everybody teaches something weird every once in a while, but if it becomes this weird core doctrine, honestly, what you typically find when folks get really weird with their doctrine, their churches start growing rapidly. Rapidly. So that's often something to watch out for when a church grows too rapidly. Maybe they've got some weird doctrine that the devil is drawing people to. There are checks and balances, but I'm just always reminded that those that get wicked, they just drop dead. The Lord Jesus Christ gives a ministry to a man, 2 Corinthians 4, 1, 1 Timothy 1, 12, once that man has been found faithful. Nowhere does the Bible state that Jesus gives the ministry to a board or any other collective of men. Hijacking is defined as taking over something and using it for a different purpose other than what was intended. For a group of men to run a church or ministry that is not theirs may be tantamount to hijacking. So we've got to keep that in mind. Lots of churches do that. The, the deacon board tries to hijack something. The elder board tries to hijack something. My cousin Phil, who some of you know, he's, he's always been among the Baptists. He's a great man. He's a great man of God and a tremendous preacher. He was part of a church outside Memphis, and I've, I have visited him there. His church, <laughs> his church ran 10,000. And, and that was kind of one of the smaller churches he's worked for. Uh, he just has, got, I think, gone to the smallest church he's ever worked for. His youth group is only 400. <laughs> I, I tease with, of course, the church he just came from was 38,000, one of the largest in the world. That's a big church. But the pastor of his church in Memphis, 10,000, he, he began to study and God began to move on this pastor. And the Lord began to deal with the pastor and say, you should not be running your church through committees. You should run it through elders and delegate authority to elders. So the pastor stands up 
and his church and says, the Lord's really been dealing with me and I believe we're going to take the church in a different direction. According to the Bible, he laid out scriptures. He said, we run this church too heavily on committees. I want to begin to ordain elders according to the book of Acts and Timothy. And that way we can be biblical. And I believe, and the pastor says, I believe if we're biblical, God will honor this church more. As if to say, you know, some folks would think a 10,000 member church, God must be honoring it. This pastor, he, he was not concerned about the members. He was concerned about his governments being biblical. Well, my cousin Phil said, immediately we had 900 families rebel. That's a lot of families. Of course, you have 10,000 members. And he said, these families, 900 a family of four, that's 3,600 people. He said, these families, most of them were on the committees. And they saw their opportunity to control and steer the church. They saw it begin to evaporate before their eyes. And they rebelled by boycotting with their tithe. They stopped tithing. I told Phil, I said, I would tell your pastor, of course, not really, I would warn that church, stay away from those families. The ground will open up and swallow them alive into hell, just like he did Korah for that kind of rebellion. Can you believe it, that those families were happy with the vision of their church and their pastor as long as they were running the committees that steered the church, but the pastor gets up and says, I want to be biblical. I want to ordain elders as are fitting, as, or, as, as meet the requirements, and let's try to be more biblical. And 900 families boycott with their tithe. And they ended up splitting the church. And the other dangerous thing is the founding pastor who established a church and turned it over to this younger fella who was probably in his 40s. He came back as a guest and preached in favor of that boycott and ran the other pastor under the ground. And caused this, this is just about within the last five, seven years, and split this church, fractured it. And the whole fight was over church governments because you had established it improperly. Really, if, a, if, if in an executive form of government the pastor gets off, you're going to hurt a handful of families and his family. You establish things like this, you'll fracture a whole church, you'll split the church and damage both halves. At least if the pastor gets wrong under executive, the Lord begins to peel one family at a time away and they can go be taken up by good pastors and assimilated into other good fold. With this kind of stuff, you start fracturing churches like this, you can hurt whole, whole core groups massively. And the devil loves it. That family tried to hijack it. They took over something that was not theirs or those families and tried to use it for their own selfish game. For a group of men to run a church or ministry that is not theirs may be tantamount to hijacking. So that's kind of all under our section on executive government. Let's look now at biblical examples of executive government and uh, just prove to you that it's biblical. Abraham, Abram heard from God and loaded up the family and the servants and headed to a land he knew not of. He became the father of our faith, not the committee of our faith. Not the uh, deacon board of our faith, but the father. One man. Moses, Moses heard from God, argued, lost, and he headed back into Egypt to deliver God's people from slavery. He led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Him, he had an elder board, and in a sense he had a deacon board, but they helped bear the burden. But both of those men, a singular man hearing from God, delivered a nation or founded a nation. Joshua, Joshua was selected by God to replace Moses. He led Israel into the promised land and distributed the inheritance. He ruled for 30 years. There's another executive. The judges from Othniel to Samuel. Many of these judges were only 
over a tribe or a few tribes. They were not all complete national leaders, yet their leadership was singular. They led and those that followed did great exploits. A singular leader. Some of the judges you'll study in the book of Judges ruled at the same time, but just over different sections. Gideon was over the tribe of Manasseh, but whereas somebody else might have been over a different tribe. Samson was over a different area. The kings, kings were not elected by popular vote. Praise God. When they got into sin, they were often rebuked by the prophets and occasionally a priest. Their rule was often cut short by their sin. David's was cut short. We know Saul's was cut short. Ahab's was cut short. They could have kept on ruling, but their perversion caused them to die. God only tolerates so much sin. Paul, Paul was the apostle over his churches, uh, over the, uh, the churches he established and had discipled. When the Corinthians challenged his authority, he was quick to point out his authority over them in the gospel. So that's another executive. Timothy, he was the first pastor bishop over the church at Ephesus. That's executive. Titus was the first pastor bishop over the church at Crete. The seven candlesticks in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, these were the angels, that means messenger, of the seven churches of the apocalypse. These were the men set over the, these respective churches. The Lord addressed them, not the congregation. These candlesticks were responsible for their church's faults and sins. And the Lord told one of them, the church at Ephesus, Repent, or else I will come quickly and take your candlestick away. He told, that, he told all, all those men, except for one, I have somewhat against you. It wasn't a committee. It was the Lord Jesus Christ coming to that man through, uh, through the epistle of the Revelation and saying, I have somewhat against you. Repent or else I will come quickly. Well, I like that promise. It's a scary one. But the Lord Jesus can judge a whole lot quicker than a committee can or an elder board. These candlesticks are responsible for their church's faults and sins. All right, what we're doing is we're just proving to you what the proper form of church government is, why it works and why it doesn't. Hopefully we can see all that. You can honestly spend a lot more time on this than just these 45-minute lessons. We want to see why do we run the church the way that we do. Well, because if, if the Lord speaks to me, I say we do it, and everybody gets in line with it. If it fails, it's my fault and my fault alone. The Lord will have mercy on the rest of us. But if we have to vote every time, in fact, I was even just reading the, the uh, biography of a great, uh, a famous businessman, and he said, boards of directors are for the spineless. A board of directors is for the spineless because it's for those that don't want to make the decision and, and shoulder the responsibility. And another, another quote is that there's nothing that hurts a successful business like a board of directors. Uh, same for a church. Now, we have a board of directors. We have to lawfully, and they're filled with ministers, pastors of other churches, and we bounce things off of them. And like I've said, there are checks and balances in place. If I get into sexual sin, I am toast. I will be removed, and I will never see this church leadership role again. So I can't just go having affairs. If I get in a weird doctrine that I won't repent of, and the elders and the board of directors bring it to my attention, look, your doctrine is not lining up with the Word, then I can be removed, and the Lord will put somebody else in place. Actually, the way we have it written, Dr. Barclay will set somebody else in place, because we submit to him. So there are these safety balances. If I get goofy, our rules allow Dr. Barclay to come in here and do something. If that is not good enough, if Dr. Barclay gets weird and I'm weird, then what happens is the Lord will start moving you guys away. And this church will just disintegrate. That's how the Lord works. It's a beautiful thing. He will always take care of His sheep when His sheep want Him. 
So let's look real quick. Last section, we call it just on committees. A committee is a group of people appointed for a specific function. Committees are neither positive nor negative. Usually committees are appointed to help research and study a situation and then make a recommendation to the executive. Many churches wisely use committees as data gathering teams. And in that regard, committees are great. The danger arises when a committee is given power to make decisions and steer the church. Most of your congregationalist style churches will form a committee to hire a pastor. That is, I think, one of the stupidest things you could ever do. You're going to take a bunch of business people, put them on a committee and say, your job is to find us a pastor? You're going to, you're going to vote on a pastor. Now, we could always say the, uh, you could cast lots and maybe God wants it, maybe God doesn't. But you're going to let the people select the pastor for the local church when Corinthians 12 says that God sets them in the church as it has pleased Him? Committees get dangerous when they have the ability or are given the ability to steer the church. I know I have family that are on committees and they tell the pastor what to do. <laughs> I can't imagine some of those family members that are mine telling their pastor what to do. I, I cannot, uh, I just, I know those family members, they need to sit down and shut up and let the pastor fix them. I, I want to tell them, you can't even get your marriage straight. And you want to tell the pastor how to run his church? You can't even come to church all the time. You gossip. You slander. Who's going to put a gossiping, slandering, backbiting, tithe thief, unfaithful church member on a committee that bosses the pastor around? That is ludicrous to me. That's unbiblical. That's the river. That's taking that river of authority turning it upside down and letting all that river and counsel from those unregenerate minds flow and tell God what to do. That's taking the river and turning it backwards. And that's what Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for in Corinthians 2. He says, But who hath known the mind of God that we might advise him? That's what you're doing. This would make the committee either a presbytery or an Episcopal form of government. We've already proven that's unbiblical. Note that committees are appointed. So if they're appointed, their authority comes from someone over them. Therefore, they are answerable to them. They don't tell them what to do. They would then be answerable to whomever appointed them. Also, a flock of vultures is called a committee. So I like to throw that out. That's a true bi biological term. A flock of vultures is called a committee. Just circling, waiting for something to die. We'll conclude with this. The Bible gives us... God's blueprint for governing and leading His church. We will do well to follow it. If you can keep in mind the analogy we've used of the river, where Jesus Christ, actually technically God the Father is the head of the river of authority. And He, he distributes it to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gives it to the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost authorizes it in the church and anoints and appoints and anoints and appoints. And from there, I, I anoint and I appoint our department heads, which are technically bishops. And they've been given authority from me. They answer to me for their authority. And they need help, so they select Jay. Well, Jay now gets a, a, a fork of the river past his way. And as long as he stays in that river, he's appointed and he's authorized. But if he tries to jump over here to tell somebody else what to do, he's in barren, dry ground. And if Jay needs help, he'll go to his head, who got their authority from me and say, hey, can I get somebody to help me? Yes. So he goes and picks Shayla. Shayla, I need you to help me do this for Miss Amy. 
And now we have this chain, this river of command. But just because Shayla has water coming from Jay, and Jay has water coming from Miss Amy, and Miss Amy has water coming from me, and I get it from the head of the church, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Ghost, doesn't mean Shayla can take her little cup of water and go over there and tell Rick's people what to do. She'd have to run across all that barren ground to get into Rick's flow, and by the time she gets there, she's nothing. She's dried up. So she does well to stay in her flow. Now, can you imagine Shayla trying to turn the whole river upside down and telling Jay, Jay, tell Amy to do it this way and tell Pastor this is how it ought to be done. Like I'm going to turn around and tell Jesus, oh, Jesus, Shayla, you know the one on the bottom of the food chain? She has a better idea. <laughs> that is not going to fly. But that's how many churches run, through committees and administrations. Paul said, I was put in the ministry after I was found faithful. Many folks, though, in churches, they take the unfaithful business owner and they put them on a committee. They're unspiritual. Perhaps they're pornographers. Perhaps they're slanderers. They're embezzlers. They have a dirty business. But because they have a business, obviously they're supposed to have wisdom to tell the church how to run. That is stupid. That's letting the inmates run the asylum. And that's not how the church is designed to run. All those epistles were written to churches because the church wasn't smart enough to run itself. Paul wrote those epistles to say, this is how you do it. I've judged being absent in the body, but present in the spirit. I've judged. Do it this way. All those epistles were Paul saying, this is how you do it because you don't know how to do it yourself. Nobody ever wrote Paul an epistle telling him what to do. But that's how a committee tries to work. Amen. Father, bless these folks. Bless their time for coming out here. Lord, I thank you for this teaching. May it help us to understand how the church works better. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to serve you in this great kingdom and for making church government so clear to us. We can study it. We can expound upon it. We can even write lessons for it. Thank you, Lord, for organizing your church and letting things be done decently and in order. In Jesus' name, amen.